All right. Thank you all for listening to my podcast, which is Facing Common Objections to the Lutheran Confessions. I have a special guest with me today on the topic of justification by faith alone. And my guest today is Pastor Adam Chandler. Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Okay. Uh, so I'm Reverend Adam Chandler. Uh, Born and raised Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, grew up in the Lutheran Church. I was actually baptized by my grandfather. Uh, as I grew up, I didn't really have too much interest into going into pastoral ministry. It was kind of on my radar, but I never really thought too much of it. Uh, I, my, my undergraduate degree, and I even have a master's in it, is in uh, civil engineering. Uh, during that time, I also went fairly heavily into philo philosophy, uh, read a, maybe two, three hundred books that way. Uh, but after my master's in engineering, I, I looked back in my life and found that God was directing me towards the seminary. So I went towards the seminary. Uh, and during my time there, I got involved in a few different things. Um, campus ministry to the to the uh, university next door to the seminary. I also uh, got involved with the International Academy of Apologetics in Strasbourg, France with John Warwick Montgomery. He's probably the most famous Lutheran apologist, especially in recent memory. And uh, if COVID wasn't happening, I would actually be defending a thesis at that academy this year, uh, a thesis working into meta-ethical theory and comparing Christian meta-ethics to uh, secular meta-ethics, trying to show that uh, secular meta-ethics has some holes that Christian meta-ethics fills. Yeah, uh, just for the people who may not know, can you can you briefly describe what a thesis would be? In, in that in that field oh okay so a thesis would generally be uh whatever topic you can think of so since my thesis was with the international academy of apologetics they're looking for theses on uh, say the existence of god talking with, with people from non-christian backgrounds uh or uh just trying to make the case for 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 God, uh, specifically Christ, because the idea with apologetics is first and foremost to spread the gospel. But since people have basically rejected the gospel, apologetics is the defense of the faith, so that you can address any concerns that people have, uh, in order for them to have. Uh, uh, more of a willingness to listen to the gospel. Uh, now, my particular thesis was a research topic, so I was delving into a whole bunch of Christian sources and also secular sources on what ethics would be. So um, are, are ethics determined by your emotions, by your reasoning? Or do they have any real basis like, are morals real or are they just constructs that we have created? Uh, 
So I was addressing those types of arguments. And then uh, in opposition to that is the Christian position where God is by definition good. So all things good are in relation to God. So anything related to sin or evil is that which corrupts the good God has created in the universe. So all our moral inclinations are actually trying to, uh, all our hearts trying to act in accordance with the goodness of God's creation. So in that sense, um, only those in faith can be truly good, as Jesus Christ himself says, why do you call me good? Only God himself is good, uh, to the rich young man calling him a good teacher. And uh, there's also the verse in Romans chapter 14, where it says, uh, whatever is not of faith is sin. Because first and foremost in all ethical theory for the Christian is the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. So God must be central in our lives. So I wanted to deal with that specifically looking at secular arguments and seeing how they can possibly produce an ethical theory in by virtue, uh, sorry, uh, without actually having a God to center the, those theories upon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like a, it, it would be uh, something I'd love to read personally, because uh, I think it's really important in the modern world, because I think what we are fundamentally arguing about as human beings currently is where do we get our morals from? Oh, yes. So uh, that that sounds like really, really cool. Thank you for uh, just clarifying that because not everybody's oh, familiar with what a thesis is and stuff like that. Um, so oh, yeah. we're, we're here mainly in celebration. It recently passed the, the, the 503rd uh, anniversary of the Reformation as we uh, de delineate it. You know, we kind of celebrate the day Martin Luther hung the 69th thesis. And in order to celebrate that, we're trying to address justification by faith alone in, a, in an opposition mostly to the Roman Catholics, which we have been battling out this particular debate for all that time. So yep. you've been kind enough to uh, be, be willing to come on to the podcast, mostly because you said you were already talking about these particular topics with Roman Catholics and stuff like that. And plus you're just nice enough to do it. So I really, really want to thank you. So um, since you're kind enough to come on to my podcast, I kind of want to generally kind of lead most of the conversation and I'll weigh in whatever I think it's appropriate. So what is justification by faith alone, according to Lutherans, confessional Lutherans? Well, the foremost definition of justification by faith alone would actually come from our own confessions. So even though the 95 Theses came in 1517, uh, the fundamental Lutheran document is the Augsburg Confession, which was presented June 25th, 1530. Uh, oddly enough, actually more appropriately enough, uh, Reformation Day was considered June 25th, 1530 until 
1817, when Kaiser Frederick Wilhelm III decided to choose the 95 Theses because he couldn't, because he, he didn't want to wait another 13 years to do the thing that he wanted to do. So uh, with the Augsburg Confession, this is our primary document defining Lutheranism. Basically, it was addressing the concerns from conservative Catholic theologians, those who were based in Rome and allied with the Pope against certain preachers and thinkers in the German states, the foremost being Luther. But uh, with the Augsburg Confession, it was not written by Martin Luther, nor did Luther sign it, nor was Luther present at Augsburg when this was presented, because this was supposed to be an ecumenical document, by which I mean it is supposed to be supported by the whole Lutheran Church, even far before it was even called the Lutheran Church, which is a pejorative term used by the Roman Catholics against us. Yeah. And um, it, it was originally, when you say ecumenical, that the original desire is not to divide, but to try to see if we could come come to agreement, right? Oh, yes. So the Augsburg Confession was originally designed to be the defense of what was being taught in the German states to both the emperor and the representatives of the pope in the hopes that we would be listened to and that there could be real reform in the church because the Lutheran movement was always about trying to reform the entire Western church and, and even uh, go beyond that and reconcile with the Eastern Orthodox church. Yeah, and, and if you do any church history, this isn't too uncommon. There's actually been several figures throughout church history that led a reformation from within the church, one of which was Syrian. Um, I listened to a podcast. It was really, really cool, really, really fascinating that he was a person who not only led a reform within the monasteries, which brought us the Padres, um, the which is like a particular field of monks that he favored. He also was one of the first people to translate scripture into the Slavic language because it hadn't been invented yet. All kind of neat things that he did, which later on in the church history, those same acts would be condemned. Um, and some people actually face death for them. So, but there are other figures throughout church history that whatever seemed like the church was moving away from God's word. There was reformers. In my, my opinion, I think one of the most famous ones is Athanasius, who mm. despite all of the world saying that he was wrong, he kept battling um, what God's word actually teaches and managed one person pretty much by himself managed to reform the church back to orthodoxy. Yeah. Athanasius has a very interesting life, <laughs> especially being kicked out of his own diocese several times. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, yeah, the, we're, we're trying to dialogue with them, but we learn that we disagree on a few things after we submit the Augsburg Confession, which, one of which is sin and justification by faith alone. Yeah. So... The Augsburg Confession itself was the initial document given. Uh, the papal representatives, they responded with, with what is called the confutation, or the confutation of the Augsburg Confession. 
which essentially addresses the particular articles within the Augsburg Confession and denying certain things in them. Uh, the odd part with this document is that they would not give a copy to the Lutherans in order to accept the confutation. They merely read the document and said, now the Augsburg Confession is confuted, so you must now be reconciled to the Pope. And the Lutherans were going, well, can't we see this document in order to address its concerns? And like, nope, 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 nope. And uh, essentially what happened was the Lutherans had to publish their own copy of the confutation of about, oof, I think it was about 50 or so years before Rome actually made it public so that we could actually say what we were objecting to or uh, what were Rome's objections at which we also, we would object to themselves. And uh, our response to the confutation of the Augsburg Confession was the apology of the Augsburg Confession. And the article there addressing justification is the largest article, well, in the entire Book of Concord. So the collection of our uh, confessional documents contains both Augsburg Confession and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And the article addressing justification ends up being about a tenth of the entire book <laughs> because it was so important that we get this right. And it was also seen as uh, something almost surprising within the Roman Catholic Church at the time that they were so willing to reject something like this, uh, something that Lutherans were trying to reclaim, and this was the prim primary message of the Lutheran Church, that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. Um, and, and, and to this day, uh, it's not just said, but in my opinion, I think it demonstrates itself if you really listen to Lutheran pastors and stuff like that, that it's the heart of our theology. Oh, Absolutely. So, uh, well, actually, why don't why don't I just go for through Article Four of the Augsburg Confession, and then I'll make some comments on it. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, even though it's extremely long in the Apology, in the original Augsburg Confession, it's rather short. So, Article Four, justification. It is also taught among us that we cannot obtain forgiveness of sin and righteousness before God by our own merits, works, or satisfactions, but that we receive forgiveness of sin and become righteous before God by grace, for Christ's sake, through faith, when we believe that Christ suffered for us, and that for his sake our sin is forgiven and righteousness and eternal life are given to us. For God will regard and reckon this faith as righteousness, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, and 4, verse 5. Now, uh, Article 4 comes as the response to recognizing human sinfulness and Christ as the mediator between God and man. Um, God being the first article of the Augsburg Confession saying, who God is, the second one being man, who, who is man but a sinner, and Article 3 is that Jesus Christ has redeemed those who are sinners. So Article 4 is specifically 
addressing, uh, this is how we obtain it, uh, obtain the righteousness of Christ, which is by grace through faith. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it's, what I what I find is a convert from, uh, to Lutheranism from outside of our confessions. I think modern day people who nobly are trying to defend this doctrine forget the righteousness of Christ and sometimes forget to mention the distinction between the merits and whose merits are involved in saving us. These two things are, are frequently um, forgotten in the explanations of these things. And so, like, anytime I read this section on justification by faith through through the Lutheran Confessions, it's always really uh, helpful for me because I see a lot of the language that I don't sometimes see in modern-day explanations. Mm. Yeah, well... The clarity of the language gets bogged down in slogans or just finite terms. So you will hear quite a few people champion sola fide, especially using the Latin because it sounds more scholarly. Uh, but when they're saying sola fide, they have a very particular idea of what they mean. And uh, it's not necessarily the original idea of sola fide, which is we are only saved by grace alone, but is faith alone in all that we do. And this is confusing. Uh, people tend to confuse the law and the gospel in this sense because they will say, by, by faith alone are we saved. Therefore, uh, we shouldn't do works, which would be the antinomians, the antinomian heresy, or they will uh, try to say, well, now my works are a part of my faith, which is the synergistic, uh, I guess you would call it more of an error, where they're saying, uh, my works have some sort of inherent uh, implications upon my faith. But we would heartily disagree with both of those types of things because they're kind of ignoring the heart of the issue, which is, well, how do we understand the law of God, that which orders the universe and orders ourselves in both uh, a natural ordering by which all things work together for the good of those who love God and also by our own individual moral and ethical inclinations. And that's confusing that law with the gospel, which it is God's grace and God working for us. Uh, for confirmation class, generally you try to divide, or you can make this into a slogan that the gospel shows us our savior and the law shows us our sins. Uh, the law having a standard so high that we cannot possibly fulfill it. Which is why uh, when we are talking about our, uh, Article 4 justification, it is known among Lutheran scholars, even Luther himself called it the article on which the church stands or falls. And this is why it's so important for us as Lutherans to try and champion saved by grace through faith apart from works, because we see it as that which defines God's church on earth. Oh, so 
in your opinion, in your studies, the the arguments that we're responding to from Rome in the Augsburg Confession, in your opinion, does that differ from the arguments that we would maybe face from a Roman Catholic today? Not by much. At the time of the Augsburg Confession, the Roman Catholic Church was still in the midst of a lot of theological turmoil and indecision. Uh, what the reformers were responding to, or immediately responding to, were some of the indulgences being uh, proclaimed throughout the German states, uh, where essentially you could buy an indulgence and receive time off purgatory so you didn't necessarily have to suffer for your sins. Uh, purgatory being different from hell in the sense that you could never get out of hell, but there's, al there's also a caveat within Lutheran theology for that, and I won't get into that one. But uh, the, the idea was that we should not be uh, trying to merit our own salvation in any way. Uh, the Roman response to the Reformers was the Council of Trent, which met uh, less than two, or at least started meeting less than two de decades after the Augsburg Confession and continued for quite a few sessions. And in there, they were discussing specifically, well, how do we understand justification and what place does justification have in the life of the Christian? And the Council of Trent basically said that faith must have works in some sense because the those who were writing and discussing the Council of Trent were going off of more of the church fathers than they were scripture. And I, and I think that's a that's not necessarily a helpful characterization of what's going on, but that is somewhat what ends up happening, because you find within the history of some of the Luther, some of the church fathers, is that the Greek depiction of what justification is, uh, where in Scripture you will have the word justify or made righteous, uh, understood with as a forensic application of God's grace, which is applied, we would say, externos, outside of you, uh, and God applies the righteousness of Christ to you, so your sins are all forgiven, and you are now standing with the righteousness of Christ. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But as the term entered into the Latin fathers, in Latin, uh, grace is understood more in the sense of uh, that which you possess, uh, not that which is applied. So then you have later on as uh, the original terminology in scripture seems, gets lost in the fathers throughout the centuries uh, with more of an idea of the Latin understanding of uh, what we might say an infused grace. Uh, the Roman church adopts that idea because they're trying to hold the church fathers or church tradition on par with scripture, uh, seeing both as the work of the Holy Spirit, therefore uh, they both inform the other. So since the church fathers were saying 
or basically reflecting an idea of an infused grace, they accepted that and almost backread it into scripture uh, to make almost a characterization of a, a poor characterization of what actually happened. Uh, in the Council of Trent, you then find when they're talking about faith and what role does faith have after you have been infused with grace, it tends to be uh, less important than it would be in the reformers who see it as fundamental to the life of the Christian or, or that which defines the life of the Christian. So <clears throat> if you are infused with grace, if you have what the Catholics would call prevenient grace, allowing you to make the choice to faith because you've already been saved by grace. You can then uh, have this faith and cooperate with this grace that you already have because God has filled you with grace. God himself is gracious. So then you are somewhat on par in that respect. But when we look into scripture, we find far more evidence of God just applying grace or bestowing his grace, pouring out his graces upon us rather than making us gracious in and of ourselves. Um, and uh, then you get into the debates of justification versus sanctification uh, within the Roman Catholic Church and between the Roman Catholic Church and Lutherans, where <clears throat> uh, sanctification for them seems to be uh, everything that happens post-conversion, which includes uh, acts of justification within your life. So you are cooperating in that sense with acts of justification post-conversion. And this is where you find things acted out like uh, penance, where you go to a priest, confess your sins, and they absolve you uh, insofar as you do these types of prayers or you do this type of action and xyz uh, after that because that is showing you the fruits of the faith that you already that you possess so being reconciled to god means that you have to perform these actions in grace so you're so, justified in that sense by uh, your cooperation in grace so your participation in faith rather than purely God's action in faith. Right. Yeah. Which, which is linked to our doctrine, extra nos. Could you quickly explain that real quick? Okay. Um, so for us, the idea of the application of grace, what we would call imputed grace, uh, is a justification in a more courtroom sense. So justification is a verdict rendered by God for us based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, you find some courtroom uh, ideology within scripture, uh, not, not a lot in the sense that it doesn't get framed that way uh, very often. But when we say justify, we are saying that if God has, through his action, declared you righteous under his law, by which he has forgiven every single last sin he, 
you have and has applied to you the perfection of Jesus Christ. So if this is a completely external action done by God, in no part can a human being participate in the sense that we are cooperating with God's grace to obtain merit or satisfaction. So it is completely God's action upon us. So where we would say that Roman Catholics would be synergistic, uh, which would mean working with God, uh, Lutherans would be monogenistic, which is uh, God alone is the one acting upon us. Yeah, uh, so the externos is uh, uh, something, a, a term that as a former Reformed Baptist, I wasn't familiar with, but the definition was definitely things that we believed. But it, I just think it's interesting that we have that term within Lutheranism. Um, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to explain that just in case we have people from outside our confessions listening. Mm. So since we've just, uh, we've, we've defined a little bit of like the differences defined justification by faith in your, in your ventures as a pastor, whether it be people who come into your church, whether it be people you talk to, um, what do you find is a common objection to justification by faith? I wouldn't necessarily characterize this as an objection per se, but what I've found particularly within the mindset of a, quite a few people, like even some lifelong Lutherans, is that uh, they will be nervous and start fruit-checking themselves. So what that means is do uh, people will be wondering, well, if I'm saved, I need to have faith. Therefore, what does faith look like? Well, it looks like me doing all these works. Yeah. Uh, so do I have the fruits of the faith? Do I have the works of the faith present yeah, within my life? This is my, my problem and... frequently in my walk because of my background I come from. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it's a, a really interesting animal to wrestle with because that is the human nature, basically. So in, in Romans chapter 2, it says, the, the God has written his law upon our hearts. So the law and works by the law are the natural language of human beings. We just naturally assume we have to do the, these works, and then I will receive something from them. I will merit something by them. I will gain some favor from God. And you can see this all the time in uh, kind of the secular community, those who do not have a strong church background at all. And they will go, well, I have to do some good works and then God might like me enough to let me into heaven, that type of thing. Yeah. So it's within the mindset of those outside of the church. Uh, when you come into the church and hear that Christ has done all the work before you ever got started, that he has saved you before you did anything, it messes with your mind a little bit. Because there's an aspect of disbelief in that because you've been acting so hard in certain actions all the time in order to try and uh, 
be righteous. But when you say, but if the, if a preacher tells you, you are already righteous, not by your own works, but by Christ's work, you still have the drive to do works, but you don't necessarily know how they are applied anymore or what the purpose is anymore. Uh, insofar as you've been trying to justify yourself in some sense. Uh, this was even in the problem within the early church where you have a whole bunch of backsliding by who we would call the Judaizers, uh, those within the church trying to act according to the law of God still found in the Old Testament. Uh, this is something the book of Galatians in scripture was written against because people were trying to say, well, you need to still be circumcised and merit or, or follow the law in some sense in order to be justified. I, uh, uh, I have to, uh, Reverend uh, <laughs> Jailer, I have to intervene just a little bit just because oh, sure. as a former Reformed Baptist, what you just said there would blow my mind if I didn't already know that that's what we teach. So they, <laughs> um, the idea that the people that are being yelled at in Galatians are saved is not assumed in outside of our confessions. Oh, wow. They, they, they teach the opposite. They, they, the, the people that are being rebuked are lost. That's the whole point. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's completely different. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I just want to, like, I don't want to get caught down a rabbit, hell, a rabbit trail, but I just want to make you aware that um, it wasn't until I converted to Lutheranism that I began to look at Galatians a little bit differently. Yes. Actually, one of the best Lutheran texts that I have ever come across, ever, is Luther, Luther's Galatians Commentary. And that really tells you the whole of the Lutheran theology. Uh, basically through working through the problems within the church in Galatia. Because when Paul is writing to the Galatians, he's writing to the church in Galatia. He's not writing to some, uh, those who are reprobate, who have fallen away from the church and can never go back. Because if that was the case, then why would Paul bother writing to them at all? They're, they're already gone. But essentially what Paul is bringing up within the text is he's trying to distinguish between the law and the gospel, uh, faith in basically faith by gra or grace by faith and works of the law. Trying to under trying to say that uh, we are distant from the Galatians in the sense that we do not have any inclination to try and merit or some work under the law seems to deny the human being who is trying to always, because of original sin, uh, grasp at that which we cannot grasp. Um, uh, yeah. Kind of, kind of uh, switching over to Philippians then. Uh, this was the original idea of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, uh, Jesus understood that... Equality with God is something that cannot be grasped. So God himself, Jesus Christ, made himself man, not so that 
human beings could go up to God, but that God would come down and live among us. And because Jesus lived among us, was a perfect servant to God for our sake, and therefore also being a servant to us, he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And because he was obedient unto death, that righteousness is then perfect, made perfect under the law, and we, re we receive that perfection. Now, with uh, some of the churches that I've encountered, even and again, even some of those in the Lutheran faith who tend to go this way, uh, what do we do with um, Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 2 to imitate Christ and follow his example when Christ is obedient unto death? Does that mean that we have to act according to the law in order to be saved? Uh, well, no, that's that's quite against the rule, uh, what justification is. So we are made by God for good works, but our good works do not merit any grace. Any grace, uh, any grace that could be merited is not grace, but a reward. So are we rewarded our salvation? Can, can we possibly obtain it through our works? Well, no. So we shouldn't be trying to measure ourselves according to our obedience, according to our works. Uh, the works themselves are not to or not for God in the sense that we are trying to make him better or appear better to others. Our works are for our neighbors to help them. So when we are looking at the law and the works of the law that are ordered by the law, so um, let's, let's say don't steal. Something basic like that. Uh, yeah, we, we shouldn't steal. See... In, in some ways, this is very easy not to do, where all we have to do is an inaction. We just don't go out of our way to take things that rightfully belong to others. But what about the flip side of the commandment? Well, the letter of the law says don't steal, but the spirit of the law is trying to protect our neighbor's goods. So, trying to follow the spirit of the law what ha what can we do to for our neighbor so that they are well provided for in a very material sense? So how do we make sure that they have all the goods that they need to live? And when we understand that, then we can understand Jesus' response to the rich young man who comes up to him and says, oh, I fulfilled all these commandments. What more must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, go and sell all your goods to the poor. Because Jesus is not pointing him to the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, and so that the man actually takes care of his neighbor rather than simply fulfill a law for his own well-being. So, yeah, I think, uh, like you're saying, like uh, it's easy in this particular first objection. Not that you necessarily oh, no. know that, but like the the struggle is is that if we are looking to ourselves we're we're we're, we're going to miss this we're going to th that's where mm -hmm. it goes wrong because in some sense or, or way i can't truly serve my neighbor if i'm busy worried about myself in that sense yes 
but even uh, going on further than that, when you're worried about the law and actions that you do, what place does God hold in that type of system? So if you're worried about your own works under the law, your own obedience, you are focusing on yourself in the relationship of faith rather than on God. And that is what Luther would call the curvitus in se, the curving inward of sin, where you're not so fo you're not focused on your neighbors, you're not focused on God, but you're only focused on your own purpose and work. Uh, not to accuse anyone within the church struggling with this type of idea, struggling with obedience, to say that uh, they're naturally sinful because they try to do good things. It's more your your focus is not where it should be. So the works of obedience in faith are the fruits of the gospel. So if you're so focused on being obedient, doing the law, can that be a proper fruit of the gospel if you're not looking to the gospel, which is Jesus Christ and what he has done for you? So you're orienting yourself uh, differently in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what would be a second objection you tend to get? I don't really get too many objections within my specific context. However, talking with, say, uh, Catholics and uh, seeing the synergism within their religion, within their, uh, within their denomination, they are trying to present the idea that since we are told to do so many things in the New Testament, that uh, we are in the faith still by doing these works, and therefore uh, the works have some meritorious relationship with our faith. Um, so this would be fulfilling the law in, in, in love. Uh, we are told to fulfill the law in love, or love is the fulfillment of the law. We see this first and foremost in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, and we know what love is because we know that God sent his son to us so that in love, Jesus Christ to go, could go to the cross on our behalf so that we might be forgiven by his actions and receive his grace. So rather than uh, fulfilling the law in kind of a, a meritorious faction where we're trying to say, I will have assurance of my salvation if I'm obedient or have uh, or merit some sort of grace by being obedient. Um, by, by acting in the law, I am fulfilling love, and this is a part of faith and must be in faith. Or, uh, so uh, you are not properly in the faith if you are not doing works. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, which is confusing how love is presented within the New Testament. Because uh, love within the New Testament is 
itself somewhat of a work. And uh, we address this, or uh, Lutherans address this quite lengthily in Article 4 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, because that was one of the main objections by Catholics at the time, is that uh, your, your faith is love, or, or uh, love is more important than faith. Because there's the verse in First uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse thirteen, which is uh, faith, hope, hope, and love abide, and the most important of these uh, is is love. So rather than looking towards faith, you're looking towards love and have love uh, emphasized more than faith. So if you're acting in love towards your neighbor, then you are meriting something that way, uh, or it has some sort of relation to your faith by which you're receiving grace. But if you understand love properly within the New Testament context and all the commands to love, uh, Jesus sums up the Old Testament laws in uh, love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus is saying that, he's giving you a command. He's giving you a law to love, to go out in love to your neighbor, to enact something. And in that sense, love is not just faith or a replacement of faith, but it is a law. You are meriting something that way. So it's it's not objection that I you find from the Roman Catholics at times where they're saying, if I'm uh, meriting grace by love, then it's it's still grace and not a work of the law, but it is. It's just a different emphasis of the law. Lutherans would identify this as the third use of the law, where within the uh, the life of the Christian, you are uh, guided by the law to do that which is good for your neighbor. But we see this as a fruit of the faith, not so a product of faith, and not something to merit faith or merit grace or enact or be enacted with grace and faith as if you could get more favor with God if you do such and such thing by love. Although, um, another objection that I get thrown now and again is from uh, James chapter 2. And I think this is the one that almost always comes up in these types of discussions, where in uh, James chapter 2, uh, let's say, um, verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So it appears that, uh, or sorry, even going back one verse earlier to verse 24, James 2, verse 24, is you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So uh, this usually gets thrown into the face, face of Lutherans and, and Protestants by Rome and to say, see, you need to have works with faith in order to be justified. But that seems to belie what James is actually talking about here, because you can't base your reading of scripture on just one verse alone, but the verse in context. 
So when James is talking about this verse, he's also uh, comparing, well, what, what is faith? And James says explicitly, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What's often missed in the English translations is uh, faith and belief are the same word in Greek, just one's a noun and the other is a verb. So to believe is the verb, uh, to uh, faith is the noun. But when you're actually looking at the Greek, pistuo is the verb and piste is the noun. So it's the same idea. So James is talking about a faith that is almost purely something of knowledge. So if you assent that God is one, if you think that God is one, well, even the believe, even the demons know that God is one. Even the demons know who God is, who know who Christ is. Even on occasion, they know who Paul is. But that doesn't mean that they actually have a living faith, a faith that connects them with God to receive grace, which is more James' point. Because when he's talking right after that, he mentions the examples of Abraham and Rahab. Uh, Abraham, James says, was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. And then James quotes, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the quote that James has, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, came from Genesis chapter 15. And the action of offering Isaac up on the altar is Genesis chapter 22. So even before Abraham did a work by his faith, his faith counted him as righteous. And with uh, Rahab, the prostitute, uh, she, when she was dialoguing with the spies, because um, she was justified by, uh, by implication, what James is saying is that she was justified by hiding the spies so that from Israel and that they would be safe. Uh, when she's talking with the spies, she's identifying her prior belief in God and saying, I believe that God will take this entire land. So I'm going to hide you for him because I know that is what he would want me to do. So she had a faith that did works, like Abraham had a faith that did works. So when James is talking about uh, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, he's talking about you are not justified by your knowledge, you are justified by an act of faith, which is receiving grace from God so that you do the works God wants you to do. Because even though we're saying, uh, Lutherans would say, you're saved by, faith, by grace through faith apart from works. So you're saved by faith alone. Faith is not alone in that it produces works.
And that has been what we've been saying since the beginning, basically. Yeah, and I, I find modern-day Catholic lay people, they try to argue, not necessarily with me, but other Protestants, I guess, um, would be to try to use that language that you just enunciated against them. Mm-hmm. And kind of try to claim that that's all that they're trying to say is that works must accompany faith. And I, I, I find a, a lot of times that it becomes a, a debate all about works at that point. And I've, I, I see a lot of people really, it's interesting. I've seen quite a few people kind of end up agreeing with the Roman Catholics. Um, because they try to use that language to try to confuse people. Um, Would there be like a a, a way to give advice to people who may kind of like, they get that kind of response, like how to kind of flesh out what they mean by that, how we can kind of see what's different? Hmm. Well, it would be difficult in the sense that when we're approaching these types of texts, they're, uh, say, like if you're pitting Paul in Romans chapter 3, where he's saying, hmm, uh, you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, versus James chapter 2, who's saying, uh, you're justified by works, not faith alone. People are not understanding James's use of faith versus Paul's use of faith to be a completely different meaning. Right. Yeah. So trying to argue from that way is difficult unless somebody is very much willing to sit down and actually go over those texts with you. If somebody is willing to go over those passages with you, then all you need to do is show, well, uh, this is how James understands faith in this passage. Uh, I'm just trying to define it somewhat more as uh, a conscious assent to God rather than a real and active faith versus what Paul is trying to say, where he's trying to say uh, faith is that which receives grace from God. Um, but okay. if but if you're trying to get into the discussion upon, about works and if they actually merit anything. Uh, Trying to get the order right might be a little bit better. So in that sense, it would probably be easier to talk about, say, uh, talk with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, because this is another text that Rome likes to... or Romans tried to throw at Protestant groups or uh, people just trying to say that you're saved by your faith alone. Because uh, we will always say verse 8, uh, Romans, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Romans will, uh, Roman Catholics will always say Rome, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. But trying to get the proper order is absolutely crucial. 
so those verses, eight, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to, nine, uh, 8 to 10, is, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the ordering with that is that we are first saved by grace through faith apart from works, which is the gift of God. But since we are the God's workmanship, newly created in Christ by, by the grace in the previous verse, then according to, uh, according to our creation in Jesus Christ, we live in imitation of Jesus Christ to do good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to do. So our salvation is absolutely independent from the actual works of the law. So any works we do, they're not meriting grace. The grace has already been received by us, by faith. And that all works are subsequent to it. So we do not merit anything in addition to it. And that would be more or less the case what uh, we could present to them. But then you have the very tricky matter of, if you're talking specifically with Roman Catholics, now you have to start talking about purgatory and, and uh, what your works have to do in relation to purgatory. Uh, for, say, a non-Christian group, uh, like more, the Mormons, who are universalists, uh, so all people are saved, but there's still three levels of heaven that you, can, that you have to get into. Uh, the most meritorious people get into the top tier, and the people who begrudgingly got converted by God, uh, they're in the bottom tier. So uh, they'll they'll try and say, well, well, of course you're already saved, but now you have to do works to get something better in the afterlife. Which is a difficult one to argue. So then you'd have to take down more of a complex theology rather than one particular or address one particular doctrine, which is the difficulty when you're trying to dialogue with anybody from a different denomination, because usually you're not arguing over one specific doctrine. You have to address the entire theological system that they're presenting and try to address all of their concerns uh, rather than focus on one particular doctrine. Sometimes addressing one particular doctrine is all that's needed, but uh, in my experience, especially with people who have been in these types of faiths for their entire lives, you have to address the entire system as a whole, which is far more difficult to do. Yeah, and it, it takes a lot, lot of time. That's why um, I've I've gotten repeated advice from Lutheran pastors tell me that, yeah, it, I get it, you're passionate about defending certain doctrines, but... Really, in order to really argue for that doctrine, you got to talk about this. Got to talk. You got to talk about this. Oh, yeah. Talk about this. And so, I don't really know how much you're really accomplishing if you're only talking about this, mm -hmm. and whatever that may be. And I, I so yeah, I, I definitely understand that, especially in light of the presuppositions outside of our confessions. Um, 
I guess the most frequent objection I've ever come across is kind of kind of goes like this: justification by faith alone. Okay, so you're saying murderers are forgiven, basically, and kind of, mm-hmm. or you know, rapist or whatever, and it's kind of like this charge of antinomianism of the that that's usually kind of what I've thrown at. I actually kind of personally lean into the gospel at that point because mm-hmm. that's the whole point is that, yeah, really bad sinners are forgiven. Like kind of like lean into the offense of the cross at that point. Um, mm-hmm. It's probably not a tactic that most people would feel comfortable with because I find that when those arguments do come up, a lot of people naturally know, oh, I can't be an antinomian. So if the charge is thrown out, I got to try to run away from that. So somebody would bring up something like that, some kind of charge that, you know, justification by faith alone is ultimately antinomianism run amok. How would you how would you personally deal with that as, as you know, whether it be as a philosopher or as a pastor, like would that answer be different? Hmm. Yeah, as a, as a pastor, typically what I would be doing is I'd be dealing with people who are uh, receiving or projecting this type of idea from a place of faith. So then I could actually address various things within scripture. Uh, if I'm addressing somebody who is speaking from outside of the church community, then uh, the person would likely not see scripture as an all availing authority by which I can actually make appeals to. So in order to address, say, somebody from a secular position who's coming at this from a philosophical point of view, I'd actually have to address this from a philosophical position. So essentially, I would have to present the case for God as moral. And so they're essentially saying, God must be just, or God must punish sinners. And I would absolutely agree agree with that. Yeah, if God has made a good creation and any aberration within this creation, uh, any sin or evil being conducted, anything that deviates from his good and gracious will at the very beginning, uh, that would mar his creation and God would have to remove that sinful aspect of his creation, uh, which is where we get the idea of, say, uh, hell, uh, some someplace removed from the creation. Uh, so at that point, we're more, I, I would be more or less on the same page as somebody from the secular community. Yeah. Uh, they would then go, okay, so how can God then suspend justice for various individuals. My reply would be God didn't suspend justice justice at all. Where 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 did God suspend justice? Um, yes, people are saved, but who is they saved through? If there was somebody who would take 
the punishment for you. If there is somebody who would, uh, on whom God could apply the worst of all possible punishments for your crimes, should he be able to do that? Well, reasonably, yes, you could try and get somebody to uh, take punishment for a crime. God can't simply deny sin exists or suspend judgment of sin. So God must take a life. Uh, in Hebrews, uh, we've, we find the, the verse that says, uh, there is no forgiveness without blood. So uh, since God is, by his justice, needs to take away a, a life for, the, for whatever sin a person commits, he needs to apply this punishment to some person. Now, Jesus Christ ends up being that person. He is in himself fully man and one capable of offering his blood for sinners. So Jesus Christ is himself the one who takes upon the punishment. Uh, he did not simply take upon the temporal punishment, the, the death of the flesh, but Jesus also took upon the eternal punishment, because Jesus is also God himself. So when Jesus was subjected to punishment, and the ultimate punishment at that, being completely separated from God's mercy, God the Father in heaven, who completely withheld his mercy from Christ, Jesus Christ as man suffered upon the on the cross, and as God had uh, entered that that suffering, that punishment into an eternal scape. So Jesus Christ himself, you could say, suffered hell upon the cross because hell is itself a complete separation, a separation from God and a suffering under God's justice. So Jesus Christ took on the full effect of sin and because he's also God and himself infinite, this is applicable for all human beings everywhere. Now, Jesus Christ fulfilled the punishment for all sins in that one event. So God's justice was not suspended, per se, because it was applied to Jesus Christ. Now, when we participate in Jesus Christ, when we are clothed with his righteousness, because he lived the perfect life under the law, uh, he also takes our sin upon himself. So through justification, our sin is removed from us and applied completely to Christ. And, uh, and his righteousness is taken completely from him and placed upon us. So that is the great exchange, that Christ took our place for us. So God is not being antinomian here. He's not suspending the law. He's not ignoring the law. He's completely fulfilling the law. But fulfilling the law in the, in the person of Jesus Christ for all people everywhere. So uh, because Jesus is himself God, this has implications throughout all time, all space, all people. Now, here would the only objection left for the secular individual would be to say, well, you can't transfer punishments over to various people. But... Uh, 
yeah, we would need to start appealing to mercy there where can you be merciful to somebody? Uh, can you can you withhold punishment? Is that seen as something good? Uh, say you were um, you were bad, you stole candy from a baby or something like that. Uh, should you be destroyed for all time because of that one action? Well, you're going to find it's going to be hard to find somebody who will say yes. You you should be completely destroyed for all time based on my human preconceptions because you stole candy from a baby. Right. Okay, so we have candy from a baby. Now, how bad does a crime have to be in order to stop withholding mercy? Or is there something, uh, is there ever a level of depravity that would force you to say there is no possible way I can ever give my mercy to you or ever possibly forgive anyone else. And that would be more or less an ongoing discussion with the individual, um, kind of working your way from stealing candy from a baby to uh, other violations of, of laws like murder or mass murder. Because in God's sight, any, every single sin is a violation of the law. So whether you stole candy from a baby or you killed a hundred people, that would be a violation of the law and you would have to be removed from God's creation. So in a very absolute sense, God would have to punish every single sin. But if God can forgive or show mercy to somebody who, show, who uh, steals candy from a baby, which is one violation of the law, why can't he show mercy to a far more serious violation of the law? And you'll have to, and again, yeah, that, that will be a bit of a messy discussion because you have to talk with the person about basically through their own preconceptions of what justice is and, right. and how justice can be applied. Yeah, that, that, that can vary on the individual. Yeah. Uh, so, so once we yeah. deal kind of with like a secular person, what about Rome in particular? Because I, I, hmm. I think from time in Amorium, uh, you know, they've kind of always kind of viewed us as antinomian for this particular view. Yeah, that was actually one of the original objections made against Lutherans is that if you were putting emphasis on the gospel and uh, removing particular emphases from the law, then people would fall into antinomianism. Uh, not necessarily that Lutherans are antinomian, but you would fall into it. And honestly, this has some justification in how it's gone out within history because there's also the Anabaptist traditions and I'm not going to say all Anabaptists are equal in this sense, but because uh, basically you just use that term as a blanket statement for anyone who wasn't Lutheran in the northern German states at the time. Uh, they, they entered into the Peasants' Revolt where they said, well, we have the gospel now. The law has no application. Therefore, I should be able to take whatever I want from whomever I want and do whatever I feel like. So in the Peasants' Revolt, you have a whole bunch of peasants stealing property, murdering nobles because they felt like they couldn't, they weren't under the law anymore. They were under grace. Uh, 
So whatever they did was forgiven. Now this uh, would be an objection. This would uh, be con this was actually condemned by the Lutherans at the time, because we never understood the application of grace this way. Uh, as part of ongoing dialogue uh, between Lutherans and different denominations, not just Rome, uh, we came up with what's called the formula of Concord. The formula of Concord is also within our confessional documents, and it's basically addressing uh, concerns from the Roman camp, the Reformed camp, and also uh, the Anabaptists. So when we're talking about good works there, uh, actually, let, let me just quote from it a little bit. So this is from Formula of Concord, Article 4 on good works, uh, beginning at uh, paragraph 8. We also believe, teach, and confess that all people, but especially those who are born again and renewed by the Holy Spirit, are obligated to do good works. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 10. In this sense, the words necessary, shall, and must are used correctly and in a Christian way to describe the regenerate, and are in no way contrary to the form of sounds, words, and speech. Nevertheless, if the words mentioned, i.e. necessity and necessary, are used when talking about regenerate people, then only due obedience, not coercion, is to be understood. For the truly believing, so far as they are regenerate, do not offer obedience from coercion or the driving of the law, but from a voluntary spirit. For they are no more under the law, but under grace. As it says in uh, Romans 6, 14, 7, 6, and 8, 14. We also believe, teach, and confess that when it is said the regenerate do good works from a free spirit, this is not to be understood as though it were an option for the regenerate person to do or not do good when he wants, as though a person can still retain faith if he intentionally perseveres in sins. First uh, John 2, verses 5 to 9. This is not to be understood in any other way than as the Lord Christ and his apostles themselves declare. In other words, the free spirit does not obey from fear of punishment like a servant, but from love of righteousness like children. Romans 8, 15. Now, <clears throat> the idea is that within the Christian life, the emphasis on the law shifts. So before, uh, when we're coming across the subject of justification, we have understood the law to be a curb and a mirror, basically restricting us and showing us that we are incapable of fulfilling it. But following, following justification, the law is that which guides us to a holy and righteous life in God's sight. This does not mean that we have received salvation from the law. This does not mean that we have received grace from the law, but that we still must do the law because that is what how God has ordered his creation from the beginning. So God does not suddenly suspend his law. God still maintains his law throughout creation, and we are to fulfill it. It is just that we cannot merit salvation th through the law. We do not live a perfect life. We are not perfectly righteous, and we are deserving of death by the law. However, because the law only condemns. Uh, however, 
this does not mean that we ignore the law in any any sense at all. We still must do the law. It is necessary, but fulfilling the law is not necessary for salvation. Yeah, and I, I think that distinction is a good one to make. And I think sometimes my personal experience when I've, I've heard people trying to explain justification by faith, they don't quite get where you just what where you just said where i think it kind of distinguishes it better yeah you know i i think like you said earlier i think a lot of our theology when i'm talking to people it's like they've picked up these slogans from just passed down time memoriam and they've never really thought about them but they just repeat them Mm mm-hmm um, you know, uh, if you bring up a particular doctrine, they're just going to almost always kind of repeat that mantra. Yeah. And that's about as far or as deep as they go. And it's kind of like a very tightly held tradition. And I find it very hard to overcome an attitude like that because they're just so operating as if it's true for so long, it's very hard to kind of Mm. You almost kind of have to, like you do with a cult member, kind of like unsnap them somehow. Yeah. Well, I think one of the misconceptions that sometimes we have is that if we present, say, the perfect argument uh, for, uh, let's just say justification, sola fide, the Lutheran understanding of it. If we present the perfect argument for it, uh, we are fully in accord with scripture. We cited all the scripture passages. We even cited some of the church fathers on, on when they he speak of this. And it's extremely convincing. And then the other person says, no, I still don't want to believe that. It's not necessarily that they will accept it right away because, yeah, as, as you said, people are within that mindset. They have their own particular, say, worldview uh, or theological system, and it's very hard to completely shift that system in order to accommodate this new argument. So for them, uh, what we can do is we can continue dialoguing with them so that they're able to make the shift. Because if it's a very convincing argument, they might actually accept it on some level, but they're having a hard time reconciling it with everything that they've established before. Yes. Uh, this is what Lutherans yeah. did for me for about a year as a reformed Baptist uh, basically argued, argued. Oh, well, I was, I shouldn't say argued, not always, but showed me God's word repeatedly mm-hmm. and um, trying to get past I, you know, I think a, a lot of, a lot of them were trying to get me to take off the glasses so that I could see what Scripture says, mm-hmm. and I think that was the hardest thing. Yeah, and in my dialogues with people, I find that sometimes it hinges hinges on one point, and because they're unable to give up that one point or uh, one idea that encapsulates a few different points they are resistant to accepting what we have to say 
So because they want to keep this one element, they will forsake the, uh, the whole whole witness of scriptures. <laughs> Sorry, that's being a, that's being a bit harsh. They they will um, they will accept the inability of their of the rest of their theological system to accommodate the scriptures because they don't want to lose that one point. Yeah, yeah. I I guess the only other objection I've ever really faced. I, I do thank you for your time. Uh, I really do appreciate it. I, I hope that everybody who's listening gets something out of it. Um, mm -hmm. Is usually an appeal to like the church fathers how it's never been taught in the history of the of the church oh. and and uh, and stuff like that. And listen, I I'm not the average person. I've actually read the church fathers and. They do teach it pretty clearly, mm -hmm. and it's not out of context. It's verbatim, very clear. Several different people, just from the top of my head, Clement of Rome, Am Ambrose. I mean, just a August Augustine's pretty hard to ignore. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, like, what would you recommend for somebody who just, you know, just not going to have that kind of time? You know, not going to have, well, not going to be patient enough to be like, well, here's this quote, here's the surrounding context, here's why we can know that this is what he means. There's nothing here that removes the meaning or changes the meaning. You know, a, a very few people are going to be that kind of patient. So part of this show is trying to support a person who maybe not be as geeky as be when it comes to theology somebody who maybe is a little bit just a simple, simple person, but maybe they might have a Roma Catholic as a family member and might face this objection. Mm -hmm. What would you say to them? I would say that there are some good resources that you can actually look into online. Um, there's different podcasts online like Issues, etc. that looks into a whole bunch of different things. Uh, Justin Sinner, um, that podcast, uh, it, a lot of Reformed arguments, quite a few Catholic arguments are addressed on there. Uh, various, actually the entire Book of Concord, which is the Lutheran Confessions, those are all online and free. If you just search Book of Concord, you can find those. So yeah, it's uh, bookofconcord.org and it will pop up for free. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a lot of resources like that all over the place, but possibly the best thing you can do is pop into a Lutheran church, see if the pastor's there, or try to make a note of when the pastor would be there. Maybe they have that up on the website as office hours. Pop in and then just ask him some questions. Speaking as a pastor myself, I love it when somebody just comes up off the street and they're going, hey, I'm kind of thinking about this. Can can we talk about it? I go, yes, I will drop whatever I'm doing and let's talk about this. Because if you're coming up to a pastor, they will uh, try to help you pastorally. So, they, so if you see somebody coming up off the street who's obviously troubled about their beliefs, 
you want to try and help them. Now, pastors are generally pretty busy, so they, you might get rescheduled sometime, but uh, I, I try the best I can to try and address all the questions that are being brought up to me at the time. So, yeah, my number one recommendation, try and contact a Lutheran pastor and see what they have to say about various things, because uh, that will give you a person who can address your specific concerns right then and there. Uh, you don't have to try and search around the internet to find something that may or may not actually address your specific concern. And it gives you somebody to kind of bounce ideas off of. Right. Yeah. I, you know, you know, I, I, I think like those are basically the, the, the objections I faced the most, but like, I think you brought up like a really good thing that I kind of think maybe we should hit home one more time just for the benefit of those who are listening you brought up earlier how sometimes the biggest argument against justification by faith alone isn't necessarily from rome isn't necessarily from others it's actually everybody kind of struggles with it in some way shape or form of believing it applies to them Mm -hmm. you know and i would say like i would be 100 percent honest like I definitely am a mess when it comes to that. Like my pastor pretty much calls me Martin Luther Jr. because I pretty much always beating myself up about Mm. something. So I would say I could intellectually read and read and read and understand justification by faith or what I would technically classify the proper distinction between law and gospel. But I have a harder time consistently living that out and having my conscience not be pricked um, when I fall short. Yes. Um, Not always, but generally. The greatest enemy you will ever face in your struggle of faith will be yourself. That's true. In some way. (laughs) Uh, Because you're a sinner. But that's just what it is. Um, Paul articulates this very beautifully in Romans chapter 7, where he himself, and I know there are different interpretations of this this text, but generally the, the Lutheran interpretation is that Paul is talking about himself in the present tense. So Paul himself is saying, I am struggling with sin, and I find that my flesh is warring against the my mind, which ha- so my mind is that which adheres to the law of the spirit, and my flesh is that which is adhering to the law of the world. And who will save me from this body of death? And this is the heart of what Lutherans mean when we say you are simultaneously saint and sinner. You are justified by Christ, you are saved. You are made righteous in the Lord's sight by the all-availing sacrifice of Jesus Christ made for you, which you have received. But you still struggle in your flesh because you still feel the pull to sinfulness, sinful thoughts, and even trying to work for your own salvation. But Right, yeah. that's that's. I would say that's what I mean. Like when my... It's not... Sometimes, yeah, the law is working correctly, but sometimes uh, 
I think it's my my flesh struggles to know. No, no, no. That's really, truly true for me. Like the basic doubt of am I saved? And I think I think we all go through our times where we right. wonder sometimes. Just especially when we are dealing with something, or we're dealing with many things. Like, um, would there be like as a pastor, would there be something like you would tell that person, like, you know, maybe like a, uh, you know, Bible like plan or something like that to kind of remind themselves that um, where they stand? Oh, if, if I'm saying this as a pastor, I wouldn't, I would definitely not phrase it anywhere remotely like that because, because if I'm giving you an assigned Bible plan, if I'm trying to say, read this and this and this, and do this and this, I am not giving you the gospel. I am giving yeah, you giving a me lot to do. <laughs> I'm giving you something to do so that you can go, okay, well, if I just do X, Y, Z, maybe then I will feel saved, which is the wrong way to go about this. So if I'm doing this as a pastor and somebody comes up to me and says, I'm struggling with this. I don't know if I have salvation. Uh, if I, if, I, if they have time, I will invite them to a private confession and absolution. So I'll ask them, uh, what's troubling you? What are you going through? What's, what struggles are you having? And, and we'll talk through it as much as we can. And we go, okay, so it sounds like you're struggling with this, this, and this. And they go, yep. Like, okay. Do you want me to absolve you? Do you want me to forgive you your sins in the name of Jesus Christ by the authority given to me by the Lord through his church? And then hopefully they'll say yes to that. And I will, uh, having a pastor right then and there, give you a private absolution. So they say, uh, since I'm seeing you here, Rob, I absolve you of all these sins. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you are now free from these sins. You are forgiven in Christ. And right then and there, you are justified before God. Your sins are taken from you. That is the indirect application of the gospel to you, to you specifically. And there's no reason I was saying, oh, well, that's kind of just a general thing for everybody. Nope. Used your name. Like, oh, well, it's just kind of for generic sins. Nope. Named your sins. Um, it is specifically for you at that time and that place is for those sins and they are now gone. Of course, <clears throat> it's also helpful to try and distinguish between uh, what, what I, might, I will typify as guilt and shame. Guilt is the legal ramifications for something done wrong. So uh, let's say uh, you, you stole something, you now have guilt before the court, uh, you can be tried uh, for, for stealing something and then you can be given a number of years, so you have seven years because of your guilt. But shame is the emotional impact that is derived from the guilt. 
derived from the wrong action. So the emotional aspects will persist, even though you yourself are not guilty, but righteous uh, in front of the court by serving however many years in your term in prison. So for um, being absolved, your guilt is gone before God, you stand righteous before him, but we still have the, the shame going emotionally going on. Uh, for that, yeah, I recommend talking with the pastor, talking with other people in the church, because God has given not only his word and sacraments to us, which forgive us our sins, but he has also given to us the entire community of God so that we may address each other in a very human fashion in, in a community where we share the Lord's love with each other. So, and it's somewhat against our natural inclinations, especially here in North America, which prizes individualism and pulling you up by your own bootstraps. But if you cannot deal with certain issues, sometimes it's better just to talk with somebody else about them and uh, especially talk to somebody else in the faith about them so that they can lend a loving ear and be in the place of Christ for that. Uh, be a mask of Christ, we would say in, in, in the Lutheran understanding. So acting in the place of Christ, you can confess to them. Uh, they can uh, hear it and they can uh, give you compassion and comfort through their witness. Yeah. Well, I certainly do appreciate your time. I, I might have to have you back on to to defend uh the the office of the key sometimes because you just oh. tripped out a bunch of people by saying you were forgiven um yeah. <laughs> in that way uh if, if there's people outside of our conventions they're definitely they're gonna be like well say what <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah um but um is there anything else uh reverend uh chandler that you would want to say to anybody that might listen to this that might be facing uh objections to uh, uh to this particular doctrine any advice or anything like that you'd want mm. to give oh boy uh, i will say scripture is truth Rely on scripture. Try not to rely on your own understandings of the topics. And that goes for both the ones who are trying to defend uh, justification by faith alone and those who are attacking it. Look to scripture. See the truth within it because it comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of God given to you. And if Scripture says you are forgiven by grace, through faith, apart from works. God has forgiven you for all sins that you have done by his son, Jesus Christ, through his actions on the cross and in the, and in the resurrection. So you can be saved, not according to your own efforts, your own struggles, but according to to our loving Father in Heaven's gracious will. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much. Is there a place that we can maybe 
if people wanted to, they could find your sermons or find anything like that, that any materials that you might have out about yeah. that. Um, yes, so I, uh, on Facebook and on YouTube, if you, if you search for Hope Evangelical Lutheran Church, Victoria, so this is a church in Canada, so I'm with Lutheran Church Canada, uh, Hope Evangelical Lutheran Church, I do, uh, I, well, we post the worship services every Sunday, but I'm also posting Bible studies. I've been going through the book of Job. A bit of my that's a bit of my specialty. I've also been going through Lutheran theology a little bit uh, on one of those Bible studies. I also do uh, about oof, eight to ten devotional services throughout the week that I post both on Facebook and on YouTube. Um, one of the things that I've suspended recently is a daily devotional on Job. I'm hoping to get back to that sometime soon once things settle down in the parish a little bit. Uh, I, I post that on Facebook. Uh, so, yeah, Facebook, YouTube, Hope Evangelical Lutheran Church, uh, Victoria, Canada, with Pastor Adam Chandler. Well, you heard it here, folks, uh, uh, but, uh, Mr. Chandler's been kind enough to dedicate enough of his time to the show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Common Objections Through Theology with your host, Rob Barhart. God bless.